0: Hello and welcome to Human Rights Unscripted, a podcast run by law students at American University Washington College of Law. My name is Lucia Cantón. I'm the podcast producer and I'm here with our podcast editors. I'm Galen Molina. And I'm Kobra Babaterk. Human Rights Unscripted takes a deep dive into several topics within the human rights field, told candidly by professors and other professionals. Today we will be talking to Professor Claudio Grossman, who served as Dean of American University Washington College of Law for 21 years, among several other accomplishments, and we'll be talking with him about his experience as a political refugee fleeing Chile in 1973 after the military coup. We were also joined by his lovely grandchildren, so you may hear speaking with them a few times throughout the episode. We hope you guys enjoy. Thank you again for, uh, thank you for taking here. the time to interview with us. So we know you have a very extensive experience and professional career in international human rights. But we're curious about um, your story before that and when you were in Chile. I know it. <laughs> you know it? <laughs> we can have your input here and yeah. there as well. Yeah, what you were doing in the 70s in uh, Chile before the d'état in 73.
1: Let me see. In Chile, I was the, I had been the chair of the Student Bar Association of the Law School of the University of Chile. <clears throat> and that is a very large uh, uh, law school, the most important in the country. And also, I was a member of the council of the university. Huh? Mm-hmm. So in that uh, capacity, we, uh, the students push for uh, law reform. Uh, clinics, services for the poor, restructuring of the legal studies from uh, memorizing topics uh, to uh, stressing more creativity. Uh, uh, And uh, uh, the key thing was social engagement, I would say. Uh, After that, I worked for a while in the uh, Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs. And uh, when the two, the coup. Took place. I was the chief of staff of the Secretary General of Government of Chile for around nine months. The Secretary General of Government was in charge of the relationship with Congress and with the press, so I would give advice on uh, different matters. And I was uh, pretty young. I mean, uh, 24 years old at that yeah. time.
0: Yeah. When do you remember what made you decide that it was time for you to leave Chile after the coup d'état?
1: Well. Uh, uh, let me say. Uh, first of all, uh, we did not know what the coup was about. There mm-hmm. hadn't been coups in Chile huh, for, the, I mean, it has said mm-hmm. in the '30s, uh, so there was a long republican tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, when the coup took place, I saved my life by chance because uh, 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 I was in among other things in the secre- as, uh, working uh, in the Secretary General of Government in La Moneda, which is the place that was bombed. And I was in charge of coordinating the presence of people at, at a high level, 24 hours per day, mm-hmm. because the country was in a very uh, serious situation, general strikes, the link uh, with the south, the railroads have been blown up, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, inflation was out of control. So there were uh, tremendous uh, tension in the country. So there was a need to report to the president uh, and to the ministers uh, things that happened also in the night. And uh, I always say that I saved my life by chance because uh, I had to be Monday night. The coup was September 11th, 1973, also a Tuesday. And I had to stay there on a Monday. But uh, uh, let me say, uh, other people who uh, had to uh, show on Saturday preceding, that didn't come. And I was responsible for the presence 24 hours per day, so I mm. had to stay there. And uh, and then I uh, told them, "them uh, You have to stay Monday night." Well, they were killed yesterday when the uh, mm. uh, when the uh, Air Force bombed La Moneda, and then they were taken alive and fusilados in a, a military unit uh, uh, close to La Moneda. And then uh, I started the. Uh, 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 you know, I was detached from the university to the, to serve uh, in the government, and I went back, and, uh, they had put a military intervention, uh, and, uh, uh, and they were deciding what to do. In the meantime, uh, people entered into my home, my father was jailed, was a medical doctor, uh, and I, uh, they started calling my name in the radios. Mm-hmm. So it was like a month hiding from one place to the other.
0: Um, why your name specifically? Like, did you? Because have any... I was a
1: chief of staff of the just, government. Just
0: by your appointment, right? Yet. Okay. Right.
1: And then uh, in 1973, well, so after the, some time going from one place to another, I uh, had to uh, seek uh, asylum, mm-hmm. and uh, at that time I. Uh, I was fortunate I had a friend who knew the Dutch embassy having I on, mean, and, and there was a window of opportunity. People were shot when they were getting into embassy. But between 10 plus 10, I mean, the military were surrounding the embassy. And in 1970, I mean, after this, some time, five, six weeks, I mean, they arranged uh, to give uh, the carabineros, the police, coffee for a while at 10 a.m., and I... Had a window of opportunity of around 10 minutes to get into them, And I was in the around two months until, uh, 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 you, you know, uh, the figure laissez passer, that means allow for free passage, mm-hmm. something international law. The Dutch negotiated with the government, and seven of us were taken in a small bus with the Dutch flag to the airport, put in a KLM flight. And I got to the Netherlands. And in the Netherlands, first of all, I saw the power of law, you know, the laissez-passer, the mm-hmm. free pass, refugee status.
0: It actually worked. Yeah, yeah.
1: in my case. And uh, I, I will tell you, uh, the Dutch at that time, even and the Solidarity, they bought for us as closes. They told me here... You have 300 Dutch guilders, but there were no euros at that time. <clears throat> and a member of the civil service uh, came with me to a store, and I had to buy a jacket, that it was the winter shoes and so forth. In the Netherlands, I uh, started, uh, uh, you know, they offered us classes, and they... Uh, started helping us trying to get uh, jobs including uh, and the papers and so on and i have uh, i was married already 2 years and uh, my wife came like a couple of months later
0: and when you left chile did you think you were going to go back eventually or
1: sure but uh, i had the impression that this was not a short process
0: mm-hmm.
1: the country had been very polarized. I mean, so, social phenomena in our lives uh, are uh, very long.
0: Okay.
1: In the history of a country, they are short, but for our lives,
0: mm-hmm. a
1: lot of... And I was not allowed to go back to Chile for 14 years. Okay. In the Netherlands, you know, after a while, I learned Dutch and I became, I got an offer and, as an assistant professor in the law school, the University of Utrecht.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I taught uh, my first class, like, I don't recall exactly, 10 months after being in Utrecht. And at the same time, I was writing a PhD thesis, you combining both. So I became a big supporter of the active methodology of teaching because I understood 50% of what they studied. Okay. So in the Netherlands, uh, the Netherlands was a very important country for my wife and I. Uh, First of all, our two daughters were born there. Uh, Second thing, coming from the hurricane of emotions of Chile and going to a country with, uh, uh, let me see, very practical, uh, with a long history, uh, with a strong tradition in terms of the rule of law, the separation of power, tolerance. So uh, the Netherlands uh, play a very important role in my life uh, in many ways, including uh, learning that I was not right all the time or most of the time. (laughs) Another might be right as well, you know. So I think the stay in the Netherlands uh, was very important from that point of view. In the Netherlands, with other uh, colleagues, I created the foundation legal aid chile that provided uh, legal support for defenses of people in chile and that became later the uh, dutch human rights institute and I, I, I work on solidarity concerning chile and other countries uh, uh, i assisted the chileans for example who had gone to eastern europe at that time and uh, they found the Presence, the, 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 the life in Eastern Europe, uh, uh, oppressive and so forth and so on, and and then, uh, I I some of them became refugees twice.
0: Um, when you left Chile, did you know at that time that you wanted to get into international law?
1: Uh, I I understood in the military coup in Chile. Uh, not just with the mind, but experiential learning, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, strengthened my view on the importance of some things that we take for granted. Mm-hmm. Independence of the judiciary, mm-hmm. presumption of innocence, knowing what happens with you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I never use a weapon. I was, uh, you know, yes, I, I support the government that has been uh, criticized with some, and, uh, and I understand some of the criticism. I was young, but you know, they could make you disappear, kill you, Mm -hmm. torture and so forth. My father didn't even vote for Allende. Mm -hmm. He was a medical doctor, director of a hospital. He was jailed, tortured, had to leave the country. So this, so you learn in the law school, Mm -hmm. these values, independent judiciary, separation of freedom of expression, but there is a different learning through experiential learning. <laughs> really? uh, you know, and I think that uh, uh, so I, I came there and I thought perhaps I can do more as uh, deepening
0: mm-hmm.
1: my knowledge of uh, law. The also uh, every societal problem has a legal component. Whether we discuss about family, law, economics, mm-hmm. families economics. Uh, let me see intellectual property, trade, a- a- everything has a legal dimension and mm-hmm. lives in institutions. So I-, I thought I could be more effective there. Right. And I mean, my, my wife had become pregnant and mm-hmm. we, had a, we-, we were about to get a-, a baby. And then we decided to stay in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And there was an opportunity at the University of Utrecht in international law. So okay. sense of opportunity and... Uh, and also the importance that i saw in the legal field yeah. from experiential learning to summarize
0: mm-hmm. okay and you said your father had to leave chile as well did he go yeah. to argentina and mm-hmm.
1: then uh, uh, he was 8 months there and was allowed to come back so mm-hmm. yeah he said Brothers were important business people. They negotiated. Well, mm-hmm. My mother was expelled from. Nazis. She was a university professor. So you saw this uh, arbitrariness. Mm-hmm. And, uh,
0: and you were, you said, about twenty-five, twenty-four. Yeah. Was? What was going through your head as at such a young age, knowing that you had to leave behind so many friends, your work, your family? And
1: it's, 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 some of them had been killed, uh, mm-hmm. or disappeared, tortured. The family. Well, uh, you know, perhaps it's a function of age. But at that time, I didn't feel any other thing than to roll my sleeves. Mm -hmm. And we had children also, and I thought uh, it's very important to create also a space for them to enjoy some of the things of their life. Mm -hmm. You know, not to be... uh, 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 and I understood the thing that you don't want to share some experiences that are negative with your children. Mm-hmm. You know, you try to create an environment with some where you have dinner together. You, know, you have uh, you take a couple of weeks of holidays. You, you know, uh, but then uh, uh, I uh, I started, created with two colleagues the foundation of Legal Aid to Chile, uh, and I work on solidarity. Mm-hmm. I understood also there the importance of uh, non-discrimination in terms of human rights law. Doesn't matter what's the, let me see, ideology of the victim or the sympathy that you have for a political process. And uh, and, and I think that that's an important uh, principle. And in my career, I have taken uh, cases, you know, against Cuba, Venezuela, eh, Argentina, <laughs> right-wing dictators, so everything. I mean, you have to demonstrate, and not only demonstrate for anyone else. I mean, that's uh, for you, and of course, you have a, a point of departure. My point of departure is this belief in the rule of law, and, uh, 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 and this common narrative of uh, uh, for human beings, or the, uh, let me see, the human rights treaties.
0: Are you still in touch with any of the people you left the embassy with? Because you guys stayed I know, long. of
1: course. And, and I can't, listen, I, I can't tell you stories. I, I was uh, working in Utrecht. That's mm-hmm. why I say that Asheville were very important in my life. was working in Utrecht. And the person I knew in Chile was jailed. And I was in the south of Chile in a prison. And Pinochet at that time said that if they would get a visa, they could leave the country. And I was with two colleagues in the university, and I told them, what can I do to hear? And jokingly, they say, phone the prime minister. So I pick up the phone, and I dial information. And I say, may I uh, uh, talk to the prime minister? And the person of information said, in his home or in the world? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And then I say, in his home? I called the home, and, the, and a woman answered and said, who are you? And I said, well, I'm working in Utrecht, I'm a political refugee from Chile, and I would like to uh, talk to your husband, the prime minister. And he said, can you come on Friday? <laughs> so I said, yeah, and can I bring a friend, Nelson Jaramillo? Yes, yeah, sure. So the two of us went to the house of the prime minister, who was a house in a you say, in a line of houses. I get down. There was no police, nothing. I rang the bell. A woman opened the door, smoking a cigar, not a cigar. <laughs> and that was Madame, Liz, uh, Madame de Nawal. Mm-hmm. I said, my husband is late. Please come in. And then we sat down and we were there and and, her husband, and she said, you want Sandwich or something. Said, no. <laughs> of course, she said. And she brought that. And her husband came like uh, one hour later, and we talked to, two hours, and he gave him a, a visa to come to oh. And the name of the person who got the visa is Jose Vargas. Mm-hmm. Then others, Rodrigo Gana. So we, I uh, kept in touch uh, with uh, uh, people. You believe so the
0: president of the Netherlands like, do you come
1: on Friday? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a good system. Yeah. Right, uh, but uh, and I kept the relationship with. There was uh, not a that was, that's classic in the Netherlands. Not a big difference between government mm-hmm. and the people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If in Chile you call the president, yeah. uh, you won't get to it. The Dutch are very well organized. Small country and. Uh, uh, and somewhere. But I made the point about the importance of the Netherlands.
0: And you stayed there for how many years? 14 in the Netherlands?
1: I lived in the Netherlands almost 10 years. 10
0: years, okay. And then you came? Very
1: informative. Then I came here as a Fulbright visiting scholar, and I was going to go to whatever place, uh, you know, Boston, Harvard, whatever. I was funded. and uh, But the dean of this law school was uh, Tom Bergenfeldt. You know the story of Tom Bergenthal. Tom Bergenthal is one of the youngest survivors of Auschwitz. Uh, Tom uh, learned to read when he was like 13 years old. And, well, he went to law, came here, uh, learned, uh, became a, a law professor, dean of this law school. Then he was the president, a member of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, member of the International Court of Justice. He's one of the most distinguished personalities in the world. in So I thought Washington, OIS, I wanted to continue to work. Uh, you know, it was the middle of 82. I wanted to continue to push for transformation. So I came here uh, and uh, I could not go back to Chile. I was not allowed, I had a refugee passport. And then I found a tremendous environment in the law school. Uh, the dean asked me to work and Goldman was here. To promote the international program, we started developing the international program.
0: And would yeah. you say that you used a lot of what you experienced in the Netherlands yes. how they function mm-hmm. here?
1: Absolutely, because I had a, the Netherlands was also projection towards Europe and mm-hmm. so forth. And but it was a. a but I re, here, I saw more space than in the Netherlands to do things. In,
0: in what a, way do you mean space?
1: Like in the, I'll tell you one story in the. So you see what's more space. Every Tuesday, we had a meeting of the uh, faculty huh? the, in the University of the Volkerrecht, International <laughs> Law Institute, okay? I speak Dutch, I continue. Did you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do? Yes. What can you say? Huh? What can you say? It can say that the name of your uh, mother is uh, Ninke, and say, sincere, uh, uh, see a good person. Okay? <laughs>
0: okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs>
1: then, if you want to sit here, you can sit here with that. Then, what, what, so there was a meeting, every and the meeting, I mean, usually you had 40% research, 40% teaching, 20% administrative work. So the first, very organized, you see. Mm-hmm. And you had a research plan. You mm-hmm. say, in two years, I finish an article on this, in three years, mm-hmm. that. And imagine I'm coming from Latin America, a country that was re- relatively well organized in comparative standards, but the Dutch, uh, 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 I don't know of many universities who have a research plan. This one doesn't. I mean, none in the United States. When I came here and I said, nice to a research plan, they look at me, you're not so well. But the point is that uh, every Tuesday we had that meeting, and then the head of the department said, we always meet here to talk about work, but never to talk about the uh, fun and to have fun. So they decided to organize a cocktail every Friday to have fun at four. And the cocktail on Friday became a discussion point Tuesdays. Do you need the same amount of chair as member of the department? So everyone said, well, you need Fewer chairs, so some people stand, some people sit. Then do we invite the, the people from the Europa Institute, from mm-hmm. the criminal law, William Pompey Institute. Do we invite? Mm-hmm. So the temperature of the cherry, I mean, I, I mean I'm mean, i getting here a little bit of caricature, but you see the organization. in Latin American with nurse, it would not have occurred occur to a Latin American to say, why don't we organize when we have fun? Okay, when I came here with my Dutch eye, the the United States appeared to be not a well-organized country. And I'll give you an example. At that time in the Netherlands, there were not even uh, credit cards. And I saw in the United States, people live with what they don't have.
0: What year is this, sorry?
1: Say, uh, 82.
0: Oh, okay.
1: The middle of 82. And then uh, also... Uh, you know, the nature of the political debate, uh, I mean, in, in the Netherlands is more rational, less strident. So with my Dutch eye, it appeared to be not a well-organized country. I mean, with Chilean and I, a better organized country. So I could have the benefit of comparing. Yes. Mm-hmm. And my international experience, both, I mean, from Latin America, and the Netherlands, really assist me in many ways. You know, we started the international program with one person, Nuria Beltran, from Spain. You know, we have now over 4,000 graduates from all over the world. The need for planning, organization.
0: And do you think it's possible and there's potential in Latin American countries and in the U.S. to function more like the Netherlands? No,
1: let me say. I I will also say the following. While I've been here, I have not missed one day that after three months being here, my wife said, We're staying. So I had to negotiate. <laughs> I needed the, a, 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 you know, I, I was committed to go back. So I needed, a, a, how you call this, a, a authorization from the US, from the Netherlands, and so on and so forth. So I am, a, you know, the space here to do things. Because among other things, you don't have to meet every Tuesday. To discuss how you're going to have fun. <laughs> so it's more rigid there, the possibility right. of change. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
1: there is uh, less space, even physical space.
0: Netherlands
1: mm-hmm. is a country with 17 million people in 30,000 square kilometers. Where Chile is 732 square kilometers. I mean, like more than 20 times larger with the same population. So you see the space, the right.
0: And when was the first time you went back to Chile?
1: Around 1957, could have been. And what was that
0: like, going back? Tremendous,
1: tremendous. First of all, I was authorized only for nine days. And, you see, Spanish had been the language of my home, particularly in the Netherlands, here I was exposed more. So it was for, uh, to tell things that were private, to go, like, with the family, with friends. So I went to Chile. And I had a strange sensation, and, and I discovered that strange sensation was due partly to people speaking in Spanish, I mean, and with the Chilean accent, I thought they were telling me secret. So, okay. I mean, that sensation, nine days, ten days, yeah. I saw the country has changed, I had changed in many ways, mm-hmm. the Pinochet still was in power, but there was a process of transition. Yeah. I mean, it started to be a process of transition, and uh, uh, people have become more. Uh, they had repressed spontaneity, huh? right. tremendous uh, discontent with the government, of course, and polarization of the country.
0: Huh? And some of those effects are still seen today, right? Like Chile yeah. has issues from like stuff that was left over from Pinochet. Right, regime. right, right. How do you see the current crisis in Chile right
1: now? Uh, well. Let me say a couple of things. Ch- Chile was a country, uh, I mean, if you look at economic numbers, you, you will see. In 1990, when the democratic government was elected, the, income, the purchasing power was $4,500. Mm-hmm. Now it's 27000 The second thing, the uh, national product was around $77 billion. Now it approaches $500 billion. The poverty was around 40%, now it's around 8%. Uh, index of equality was 57%, now it's for this inequality. Uh, but, so somebody would say, oh, I want to analyze a country on the basis only of economic indicators. Well, the case of Chile showed that that will not do. Also in Chile, there were no political prisoners, no trade union is killed, uh, freedom of expression, all the way. But uh, uh, there was a situation of uh, serious deterioration of public education. I I, I studied in public schools all my life. And that was not, I mean, 50% of the Chileans don't get quality education. Pensions were miserable. Access to health also. And there was a sense of uh, alienation from the legal system. Uh, I will say also, uh, and so there was a social explosion. The reactions of the government were, were not, uh, I would say, proper. When the students started to protest, the secretary of economics said, that, well, this uh, Price hike starts at 7 a.m. every day. So work, work up early. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. And the Secretary of the Treasury, what I read, said people complain that things have gone up, the prices, not flowers, buy flowers. So one factor was, you know, a population that became middle class with knowledge of things. And a tremendous sense of inequality, of lack of fairness. People want to live a better life. Second thing, the influence of the internet that gives access to information anywhere and everywhere. Third thing, I think there has been a deterioration of the value of democracy and the rule of law. When you see uh, narrative languages, mm-hmm. powerful leaders that go against uh, Uh, let me see, separation of powers, respect of the rule of law, that percolates through our society. Also, uh, the Catholic Church was very important in Chile. Now around a little bit more than 40% of the Chileans say that they are Catholic. And the scandals of the church uh, created, uh, I mean, diminished the value of a social glue in the country. Mm -hmm. The church played a very important role against Pinochet, for example the official church, the Archbishop of Chile, they created the Vicaria of Solidarity, they defended victim, and so forth. And then uh, all these factors play a tremendous role. Always uh, the middle class is a a, a group with with tremendous uh, potential. They have more education, they they have access to education. When I went to Chile, perhaps less than 10% of the students I don't know exactly the number. came from workers' peasants. Now it's over 70%. So they want a first check. That being said also, there have been incidents of violence that are unacceptable. Looting uh, supermarkets, burning uh, metro stations. So I think it's very important to get after who has done the things. I will also tell you, I think the police is not well prepared or trained totally sufficient means. But I think that there are uh, criminal groups uh, using the peaceful, the right of peaceful protest huh? to, uh, or, uh, uh, or, and, and it's very important to, uh, not to accept.
0: I have one more question for our law school listeners. If you had to give one piece of advice to incoming lawyers in the human rights field, what would that be?
1: Well, that they should pursue their interest, Mm -hmm. and they should pursue them uh, also uh, with uh, uh, not just studying the field, but uh, developing skills in these law schools that are essential for the practice of uh, human rights law. I mean, the international programs, the student associations, Uh, because you, you learn how to work with people, you, you are exposed to foreign languages and foreign, uh, so that. then practically it's important to know that to work in human rights there are many possibilities, not just a full-time job in human rights that could be or difficult to get or, or impossible because you have, you made the mistake of not having rich parents. And you have to pay Mm debts. But you see, you can devote part of your time to do things and have your open, I mean, to volunteer in a non-governmental organization, to uh, uh, take a case Mm -hmm. Uh, that is uh, important for you. I mean, listen, the world would change if we were to convince uh, the law firms to put 1.5, 1.5. 5% of their time in doing things for that. So if you have an interest in human rights, I mean, uh, uh, sometimes if you say, well, I put 100% of my time and then it becomes impossible, you have to abandon the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So it's better to say, if I don't have that opportunity, I look for it, but if I don't have it, I will uh, work in another area and then put part of my time to volunteer You know, in the legal field, uh, to do things in your own right, take cases before the UN, domestically, immigration law, criminal law, and all uh, 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 create all spaces, uh, uh, business law, small, uh, uh, I mean, the small business operations. Advice. There are multiple ways uh, to practice. Now, one thing I I want to say: I became the dean of the law school, uh, and I was the dean twenty-some years, and. during those years, we did a lot of things here. Huh? Uh, the expansion of the clinics, the Centers for Human Rights, the Academy for Human Rights, the Moot Court Competition, huh? uh, uh, strengthening the women and the law program. I was the first reporter on women law in the organization of American states. Uh, I was elected in the OIS. When Chile regarded its democracy, Chile promoted me for the Inter-American Commission, Committee Against Torture, so, and uh, we push, I mean, not we push, we, we did a lot of things, not only for international law and human rights, the business program, intellectual property, I mean, all, all this stuff, because you need to create a pluralistic environment, eh? mm-hmm. uh, for people to pursue different careers, not only human rights. But what I want to say is that, so that gives me an answer, uh, this is part of an answer,
0: mm-hmm. in the sense
1: of, <laughs> Take courses, open, uh, I mean, be prepared uh, uh, to do other things and work part of the time in something, be yourself, mm-hmm. develop your skills. And this law school is particularly well suited to mm-hmm. offer this opportunity that allows you to develop your knowledge and skills. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you very, very much. We will let you know when this airs.
1: Okay. Good luck with everything. Just so you're second year.